Hello, dearest listener. You have tuned in to At Your Peril by Arthur McBain and Owen Jenkins. Before we begin, a parish notice. A warning. What you are about to hear may terrify and horrify you to the very core of your being. It may also involve content unsuitable for children, those with a nervous disposition, or wimps. If you must, turn off your receiver now. No? In that case, we shall begin at your peril. letter, I ran out of pen ink at a rather inopportune moment, so I am now attempting to pick up where I left off from the last letter, here and now. A sort of, uh, second part, if you will. I had let everyone go to their rooms and was sitting on my own. I needed time to plan my investigation. I needed time to think. I looked outside. The falling snow, by now lit only by the moon, had transformed the grounds into a silvery, frosted wasteland, haunting but beautiful. I had a sudden urge to run outside, giggling with glee and make a snow angel, but then I remembered that someone had died. My host, the very one who had brought me here, had expired. The tragic thought struck me that I would probably not end up giving that impromptu oboe recital after all. Death was a cruel mistress. Ain't that the sleuth? I focused my thoughts on the case at hand. As far as I could see, each guest had a possible motive, but I needed to know more. So, keeping them apart, confined to their rooms, I would conduct an interview with each of them. I had a knack for knowing when someone was lying to me, and a gift for weeding out the truth. No tricks, no spells, just simple psychology and my trusty notebook and pen. But where should I start? From the socializing earlier on in the night, I feel like I had a fairly good handle on each of them, but one. Someone had remained a puzzle. Miss Terry. Thank you for joining me. I don't exactly have anywhere else to go. Well, indeed, but thank you all the same. Now, let me ask you, how well do you know Cynthia? Not very. I only met her yesterday. I mainly know Rupert. Yes, that's right. You were introduced to me as Rupert's acquaintance. And you know him very well, it seems. I suppose you could say we're close. Could I say you are very close? I suppose. How about very, very close? Might that be true? Well... And what if I were to characterise it as very, very, very close, Miss Terry? Would that be an accurate description? I'm not sure I know what you're getting at, Mr. Dwelling. Oh, come now, Miss Terry, I think you do. Before dinner, I had my little pre-dinner trip to the toilet. Number one, not number two. I couldn't help but catch a little bit of conversation. It was between yourself and Rupert. I've written down some snippets. My darling, my love, I've missed you. Do you think it will go to plan? We should get back. We can't raise suspicion. Is this uh, ringing any uh, bells? I didn't realise you could hear us. Then perhaps you should stop having private conversations outside toilets. 
Are you a jealous lover, Miss Teddy? Not at all. Do you think Cynthia was a jealous lover? Maybe that's why you killed her. To get her out of the picture so you can have Mr. Throbbinghall all to yourself. Look, I really don't think this is necessary. I mean, she's still sat at the table. Shouldn't we be calling someone to take her away? Keen to get rid of some evidence, are we? No, I just... I don't think it's right letting her just sit on the table like that. When the snowstorm dies down, the authorities will be alerted. I have the situation in hand. Thank you, Miss Terry. This has been enlightening. You may leave. Thank you, Mr. Dwelling. Next, I interviewed Dr. Pepper. He seemed sad. His fizzy quality from earlier seemed less present, and perhaps taken aback by the evening's events, he seemed a little flat. Tell me, Dr. Pepper, you've been Miss Cynthia's doctor for... Oh, a long time. I didn't just consider her a patient, I considered her a dear friend. It's terribly sad she's gone. Yes, yes, yes. But might the will cheer you up? Might you be in for some money? Well, apparently I am on the will, but that's not really the point, and I find it abhorrent to suggest otherwise. Nothing about Cynthia's passing would cheer me up. Even if it was a lot of money. Cynthia was a wealthy, wealthy woman. The end of a long line of wealthy, throbbing halls with a lack of any family. Uh, might that mean you're soon to receive a hefty sum? Well, first of all, I don't know the state of Cynthia's finances, though I suspect, with Rupert's gambling as it is, they may not be all that good. And nor do I know the details of the other beneficiaries of her will. We didn't discuss it, and nor should I want to. Secondly, as I've already said, Mr. Dwelling, there is nothing here to celebrate. A dear friend and a patient of mine has died. Yes, I wanted to get on to that. Cynthia's ailments, her phobias, they were difficult to treat, I imagine. The difficult thing was seeing her suffer. And you prescribed a strong course of tablets, did you not? I did. Despite the fact she didn't want to take them. Well, she had an acute fear of them. But you forced her anyway. Well... You even gave her one at six o'clock this evening, I recall. And now she's dead. What is it you're insinuating, Mr. Dwelling? You are a man of many disguises, aren't you, Doctor? You claim you use these disguises to aid Cynthia's conditions. But perhaps you use them to aid her demise. You knew you had some money owed to you from her will, but with Rupert's debts mounting, you didn't want to see that dowry diminish, and maybe that's why you killed her, like a coiled cobra you strike, overdosing her with your greatest disguise yet, that of the murderer. These are preposterous, unfounded claims, Mr. Dwelling, and I will not tolerate any more of this poppycock. We don't even know she's been murdered. It might have been any number of causes. She hasn't even been properly examined. All I can say is it certainly wasn't me, and it certainly wasn't my tablets. So you think it could be poisoned then, Doctor? From the soup? I'm saying I don't know. Now, I have quite enough of being spoken to like this. If you need me, I'll be upstairs. Goodbye. Thank you for your time, Dr. Pepper. I am humbly grateful. But he had already gone. I couldn't help but notice that after I'd given him a bit of a shake, Dr. Pepper seemed to have some of his fizziness back. Next up was Mr. Hugh Dunnett. Please, Mr. Dunnett, do take a seat. No, thanks. I'll stand. Then I'll stand too. I see you had a notebook you were scribbling away at over dinner. In this we are alike, Hugh. I never leave the house without my notebook and pen. What is it you're writing? Oh, nothing much. Ideas for stories. Will you be writing about this evening? Uh, I, um, I'm not sure, really. Oh, come, Mr. Dunnett, I'm sure you will. In fact, I remember our discussion about it before dinner. I even wrote one of your comments down. This is how I use my notebook. 
Quote, I just need one good story, that's all I need. Something juicy, a scandal, a murder, end quote. It seems you got exactly what you wanted. So? Doesn't prove anything. A few moments later, you left, saying, quote, I might ask Gubbins for a tour of the kitchen. Might be something I can write a story about in there, end quote. Did you find anything in the kitchen? Not really, no. Just pots and pans and stuff. I just spoke to Dr. Pepper before you. He confirmed my suspicions that it could well have been poison in Mrs. Throbbinghall's soup which killed her. Were you aware of that fact? Me? No. Can't say I was. You're all washed up, Hugh, done it. I think you would do anything to get that exclusive story required to once again hit the dizzying heights of Fleet Street. Maybe even become the story yourself. Maybe that's why you killed her. Sneaking into the kitchen, identifying Cynthia's bowl, or perhaps even paying off Gubbins to administer deadly poison to her soup just so you could get an exclusive. Now I know why they call you the gutter press. You know what? This is going to make a good exclusive story. And it will probably make me a successful London journal again. But this death has nothing to do with me. And what's more, I found something even better than Cynthia's death to write about this weekend. Something which is going to be perfect for the joke column. You, Mr. Dwelling, good evening. Hugh waved his hand ferociously in the air, and with that, he was gone. For a moment I laid my head in my hands. This is why I never go to house parties. Thoughts poured through my head like water from the Trevi Fountain in Rome. The Trevi Fountain? Of course. The most beautiful and ornate fountain in the whole of Europe, but a fountain nonetheless. Take away all of the fanfare and detail, Dixon, and what you end up with is merely a fountain, just like the one in the Throbbing Hall's grounds. One must rid themselves of being distracted by the fanfares and flourishes of detail and really focus down on the matter in hand. In hand? Of course, when Hugh Dunnett waved his hand ferociously in the air before leaving, his hand was not empty. The flourish of movement stopped me from seeing the reality of the situation. He was holding a sheet of paper, a checklist with notes scrawled in the margin. I didn't know what this meant just yet, but I had a hunch that it would be a tool to access the truth. Next up was Rupert, looking as handsome as ever. How are you bearing up, Mr. Throbbinghall? Well, I must say, I'm still in shock. I can imagine. It's been very sudden, hasn't it? It has, yes. I'll cut to the chase, Roop. Can I call you Roop? No. Roop, I know about your affair with Miss Terry. Your relationship with Cynthia was just a sham, wasn't it? A marriage of convenience. Though, in the end, not all that convenient for Cynthia. She feeds your gambling addiction and you take and take and take. All the while, your love for Miss Terry grows. She begs you to leave Cynthia, but you can't. You're in too deep. You enjoy the extravagances her money gives you too much. You can't let them go. Until finally you see a way out. On the anniversary night of your wedding, your gift to your wife was death. Are you saying I'm a gold digger? You take her money when you're in need. But no, it's worse than just that. I'm saying you're a grave digger. A murderer. 
You didn't want to do it, but you could see no other choice. So maybe that's why you killed her. Slipping off to help Gubbins with the soup, but secretly administering lethal poison to Cynthia's bowl. From then, it's just hmm, playing the part, waiting for the money to roll on in. You'll be back at the races by next week, assuming the role of the wealthy widow. It's horses for courses. What utter nonsense. If there wasn't a raging snowstorm outside, I'd throw you out of my house. In fact, maybe I will. I knew we shouldn't have invited you to this party. Inviting strange detectives to your anniversary is bad news, I said to her. But she wouldn't listen. And now she's dead. I'm not saying it's your fault, Dwelling, but this is the first time you've ever come to the house, and it's also the first time Cynthia has died. I'm starting to feel that's no coincidence. Stay out of my sight, Mr. Dwelling. Rupert stormed out of the room. He was grieving. He was in shock. He would recover. And I would get to the bottom of this murky pond. And with that, I asked to see Gubbins. So, Gubbins, when you made the first course of soup, which was, by the way, delicious, <laughs> you didn't put any poison in Cynthia's, did you? No, sir. It was mostly just tomatoes. Are you, are you going to try and pin the murder on me, sir? Because... I ain't got nothing to do with it, sir. I I've served the throbbing holes all my life. Why would I want to destroy my livelihood? But you said they haven't been paying your livelihood for some time. Well, killing them isn't going to suddenly get me paid, is it? It'll make it worse, if anything. There's no chance of receiving a wage from a corpse. Gubbins, you're right. I like you. You can go and... Thanks, sir. <laughs> Gubbins, Gubbins. I hadn't finished. Please don't cut me off. I was just going to say you can go and get me a hot chocolate, but then you started crying and look, you can go. Sorry, <clears throat> Sorry sir. Uh, thanks, sir. Gubbins, I hadn't finished again. A hot chocky, foamy milk. Please, I'm still a guest here. Goodness sake. And with that, he waved his hand in the air, bowed his head, and returned from whence he'd come. I smiled. Gubbins had a particular working-class charm, a salt-of-the-earth charisma, a working-class, salt-of-the-earth charismatic charm. But then I realized he was holding a piece of paper in his hand as well, another checklist, just as Hugh done it. I closed my eyes. I needed another think. It's a detective stock in trade, thinking, and closing your eyes makes you do bigger thinks. What is dreaming if not one long thing? In my mind's eye, I pictured my suspects as though they were once again stock characters in a second-rate fictional crime thriller. Of course, my suspects were a whole lot less cliché than in those stupid stories. But I pictured them in my big thinks nonetheless. Rupert, Miss Terry, ah, Gubbins, thank you so much. Uh, sorry, Gubbins was just uh, giving me the hot chocolate. Dr. Pepper, Hugh Dunnett. The murderer had to be one of them. But who? It's times like this that I wish I had more suspects. More suspects affords me more time to think. But it also gives me more suspects, so actually it's sort of a false economy. And then, Dixon, I realized that I did not have all of my suspects. Someone was missing. 
the violin player. I shot to my feet, which felt extraordinary, as I was already stood up. So effectively, I sort of did a little jump. I raced to the lobby and up the grand stairs. I needed to interview that musician. And fast. But where were they? Then I heard it. They were playing right now. Fraught, energetic music, which really helped the atmosphere of suspense. I opened a door to one of the bedrooms, and there they were. They were shocked to see me, wild-eyed, surprised, fearful. Was this the look of someone guilty? It could be. Well, well, well. If it isn't you again, hello. Tell me. What's the difference between a detective and an oboist? Please, mister, I'm just trying to practice. Please leave me alone. A detective is glad when the case is closed, and I'm here to close the case. I'm on a break. I'm practicing. Oh, just practicing, are you? Away from all the bloodshed. How convenient. Please don't try and show me your oboe again, she said, pointing to the oboe case clutched tightly in my fist. Oh, don't you worry. This isn't about my instrument. I was going to give you a lecture in death. What? You're going to kill me? But before I could explain my clever quip, the stupid violin player burst past me into the hallway with a terrified squeal. Ah! I pursued, hot on her heels. Please leave me alone! I don't leave killers alone, I called out. Justice never dies. I don't know what that means! Well, ain't that the sleuth? We raced, red-faced, I chased with haste. They found an open window in the hall and clambered through, snapping their bow in the struggle. I'll be on to the musician's union about this. Being pursued by a lunatic oboist with virtuoso delusions was not in the job description. Besides, I'm on my allocated 15-minute break. We have to have breaks. It's in the contract. At this point, we were both on the roof. The wind tossed what was left of my hair and gave me goosebumps. It was icy, treacherous, slippery, dangerous, perilous, and very, very slippery. But it was all for the cause. All for the case. Speaking of cases, at this very moment, I dropped my oboe case, and my oboe fell out. It scattered towards the violin player. Strangely, out in the cold, my oboe looks smaller than normal, but I assure you, it is definitely an average-sized oboe. In the commotion, the violin player tried to hop over the oncoming woodwind, and in doing so, slipped and... I am horrified to report, Dixon. Fell from the roof towards the throbbing hall's fountain, which was iced over and decorated with spikes, which in turn were coated in a thin layer of ice, making them far more supple and easy to insert into a human body. Owing to the water bill not being paid, the water in the basin had become stagnant and was, it turned out, teeming with bacterial lice that are known for infecting wounds and feeding on a human body from within. Not to mention Rupert's prized piranhas. Well, the violin player landed on the gravel just beside this fountain. and died upon impact. And it was all because of my oboe. Why did all my recitals end like this? 
People had heard the commotion and came running out of rooms. I found an open window and climbed back through. It was important to get back downstairs and check on Cynthia. There were now two corpses to deal with. I wish I'd stayed in London. No one dies in London. When I got back to the dining room, my heart stopped. Cynthia was gone. Someone had moved the body. But why? The murderer? Covering their tracks? Trying to hide crucial evidence? Quite possibly. Anyway, I thought it would probably be polite to go outside and check on the violin player. What I saw when I got outside will haunt me for the rest of my life. Everybody, the whole party, had gathered outside by the fountain to check on that foolish violin player. Everyone, including Cynthia. She was standing up, looking at me, breathing. What the hell was going on? She was alive, but I felt as though I was seeing a ghost. But the opposite of seeing a ghost, because you see, she was very much alive. Not alive, however, was the violin player. The violin had broken her fall, but sadly had pierced her stomach and impaled her. Mr. Dwelling, what on earth happened to the violinist? Mrs. Throbbing Hall, what on earth happened to you? Oh, I'll get to that. But first, let us deal with the matter at hand. Did you murder this musician? Absolutely not. You've got the wrong person. I pointed at my oboe, now in tatters on the gravel. This is your culprit, Lady Throbbing Hall. My slightly larger-than-averaged-sized oboe. I have nothing to do with this. Mr. Dwelling. Oh, well, you should know from years of playing that you can't charge an oboe with murder. Trust me, people have tried. No, I'm afraid the buck stops with you. I am placing you under arrest. I suggest you find yourself a lawyer. Rupert and Miss Terry grabbed my hands and handcuffed them. What's happening? Please. Look, look, I'll go quietly. If, if just one of you would just please tell me what on earth is going on. Cynthia, Rupert... Terry, Hugh, Gubbins, Pepper? They all looked at each other. Then Cynthia spoke. We are a consortium from the Office of Detectives Official Rankings, or O-D-O-R. We were here this weekend to assess your skills and overall competency as a detective. Every one of us was working undercover and has been secretly monitoring you on a number of criteria to accurately place you in the official British detective rankings. <sighs> This entire weekend was a facade, Mr. Dwelling. None of these people are who they say they are. We are all colleagues. My name is actually Margaret. This scenario is a complete fiction to test your skills. Shitterton House does not exist. This house is a set. The tea you were given on the train was drugged in order to send you to sleep, and from that point our team got to work transporting you to this theatrical set which spans from the house to the fake train station, which, as you can see, is only 100 yards. The snow is made of tissue paper. The only person here not from the Office of Detectives' official rankings was this violin player, hired to help set the atmosphere. Tragically and regrettably, they have now been killed by you. Do you have anything else to say before we take you into custody? Just one question. How did I do? 
Am I still the greatest detective in the country? Miss Terry spoke next, though it turns out her name is actually Pam. Mr. Dwelling, after what we've seen today, you're not even in the top 100. Your assessment began on the train. I was there with my notebook and pen, scribbling down initial key observations, and from the get-go, you were a disappointment. It took you an absolute age to complete a simple crossword. Your leather satchel is tatty, and your magnifying glass looks cheap. Then, incredibly, you mistook the tea lady for a man. The tea man popped up from behind a fake wall. I've never been so offended in my life. My good sir, the bloody cheek. So as well as adding the sleeping powder, I spat in your tea. Next, Gubbins spoke, but his accent had changed, and, and it turns out his real name is actually Sebastian. Next, you met me at the station, and I, I have to say, uh, when I pretended to nip to the bank, I noticed your oboe playing. <laughs> it was atrocious. Next, Rupert, who was actually Greg. Next, you met your hosts, myself and Cynthia Throbbing Hall. A detective must always ingratiate themselves in any situation. You never know when it might be useful for interrogations later. But you, Mr. Dwelling, had all the charms of a reversing dump wagon. And your detective's walk is a travesty. Hugh Dunnett spoke next. His real name was Dennis. Dennis Dunnett. Personally, I would have stuck with Hugh. Your detective catchphrase is way, way below par. Ain't that the sleuth? It doesn't even really make sense. Your witty quips are non-existent. And how can you expect to be a leading detective in this country if you haven't even bothered to grow a moustache? Dr. Pepper spoke next. His real name was Mr. Schweppes. The night progressed and the fake death of Cynthia occurred. We had given you a very clear indication as to Cynthia's ailments and you didn't even bother conducting a proper examination of the body. If you had, you would realise this case was absolutely cut and dry. It was clearly and obviously a death of natural causes. Back to Dennis Dunnett. You then conducted a series of interrogations with such incompetence I found myself actually getting so angry I lost my temper. I even accidentally brought in my checklist notes. At one point, I was concerned you had noticed them. Sebastian even did the same. Your detective skills are actually so bad, I actually wept. I thought maybe having noticed my notes, you had started to cotton onto our assessment. But fortunately, you're not a good enough detective. That's what those bits of paper were. I see. It's all starting to come together. But the conversation I heard between Rupert and Miss Terry, was that scripted? No, that was real. We didn't realise you could hear us. Greg and I are actually a couple. We work long hours at the Office of Detectives' official rankings that we don't often get much time to socialise. We tend to keep it in the ODOR firm. Margaret and Sebastian are married too. We are, aren't we? Cookie. It's true, Sebby, sweetie. So, taking into account everything I've seen and heard, we have decided to place you as the 179th best detective in the country. And frankly, you've been lucky to get that. Now, this way please, Herman. You're going straight to the police station. Dennis, call an ambulance for the violin player. Will do. So, as I was placed into a motor car, handcuffs on my wrist, I pondered on the strangest and quite possibly the worst day of my career as a detective. And this brings us to right now. As the motor car speeds towards the police station, I am frantically writing to you, dear Dixon. I fear the ink pen is running out, as is my freedom. I have checked with the rankings, and you appear to be in the top ten rankings of lawyers in the country. So please, Mr. Dixon, will you represent me? 
I opened my letter with my two nuggets of wisdom for a detective. First, that you're going to need a pen. I stand by this, and it has also been useful in writing this letter to you. The second of murder, that you really have to want to do it. I no longer believe this. Because I really did not want to murder that poor musician, and I desperately need your help to clear my innocence and go back to being on the other side of the law and doing what I love, solving crime and fighting justice. Ain't that the sleuth? Please write back to me urgently. Yours fondly and with sincere thanks and lots of love, Detective Herman Dwelling. Case Parts 1 and 2 was voiced by Freddie Carter, Harold Addo, Dorothea Jones, Bronte Tadman, Richard Leeming, Emma Ballantyne, Grace Dunn, Arthur McBain, and Owen Jenkins. Okay. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Who saw that coming? I know. It was uh, shocking, actually. <laughs> Do you think they'd done it? No. Um, do I think who did it? Well, that's, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's hot in it. It's, it's really, really hot. I'm very warm. Um, we're just popping in here uh, at the end to say that that is the end of our this batch of episodes. Um, we don't call them serieses or seasons. We call them batches because it's similar to making croissants. It's a long process <laughs> <laughs> and involves lots of butter. <laughs> Do you yeah. want to take it from here, Owen? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, good. Well, have you got anything else to add? <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. Thank you so much for the voice actors who got involved in that episode. And a couple of them have their own podcast. Bronte Tadman and Richard Leeming, who played Miss Terry and Dr Pepper, they have a fantastic podcast called What Happened There Then? The podcast where two old friends, Bronte and Rich, openly discuss all sorts of tricky topics surrounding their mental health, alongside some silly conversation starters to help us all find stuff to talk about as the world opens up and we start socialising again. Um, yeah, so if you're interested in some more podcast recommendations, that's a big, highly recommend from us, isn't it? Yeah, massive recommendation. It's really good. And um, I, they're really funny as well, aren't they, Bronte and Richard? Yeah, they are. They're great. So. And they were brilliant in this, so thank yeah, you, guys. thank you for getting involved. Um, listen to them. But for now, yeah, we'll say goodbye for a bit but we'll be back very soon we will be back make sure we're still going to be um uh, hanging around on social media and stuff so you can drop in anytime you like keep telling your friends about us because in this uh time it would just be great to see the play count going up because uh, we live for the play count <laughs> and um and yeah we'll see you in a while we've got some pretty cool I episode ideas we do we've got some lovely stuff cooking for the next batch so keep your ears to the ground thanks guys bye